sometimes I think we get so caught up in the law or what we see as the guidelines or the things that are commanded in God's word, and we see them as restrictive, and we forget that God is a good father, and that if there is a restriction in place, it's to offer us freedom in that obedience. Just like as a parent, we give rules to our children to keep them safe. God is a good father. And so today we're going to look at the latter part of Psalm 19 and see how David talks through this relationship with God and the ways that God reveals himself through the law. I pray it blesses you. Hey friends, welcome to the Hearing Jesus Podcast. Do you sometimes doubt if you're truly hearing God's voice or if it's really your own? And how do you know the difference? Do you ever struggle to feel confident in your relationship with God and what He says in His Word? Do you sometimes feel stagnant or like maybe you hit a wall in your spiritual life? Hey, I'm your host, Rachel Grohl, missionary, author, pastor, and life coach, and I have been there. I too was doubting God's voice in my own life. I felt insecure about my relationship with Him, and I wanted to be obedient to what God was calling me to do, but I wasn't quite sure how to figure out what that was. I felt like I was wasting time trying to figure it out, and I just wanted a way to understand His will for my life. The answer for me was found in the pages of the scriptures, as I learned how to understand what they were actually saying. If you're ready to grow in your faith and to step confidently into the calling God has for you, then join me as we dig deep into God's Word so that you can learn to live out your faith in your everyday life. Hey friends, before we get into today's episode, I have a quick word. I know that you have been frustrated with being confident in how to tell the difference between hearing from God and wondering if it's your own voice. I know, I've been there myself. That's why I wrote the Bible study, She Hears, Learning to Listen to Jesus. This is a six-week study that takes you through the book of John, looking at six women in the life of Jesus, how he calls them, how he encourages them, how he equips them. It also teaches the color method of Bible study, helping you to learn how to really understand the scriptures. I also include a lot of cultural and historical information that makes these familiar passages of scripture really come alive. This is a great study to do with maybe your teen girls or a group of friends from church, and it will really help you gain confidence in how to hear from the Lord and set you up with some tools that will stay with you long after the study is over. Again, head to shehears.org and you can find the Bible study on the resources page. Hey friends, welcome back to the Hearing Jesus Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Grohl. Today is day two of our devotional reading of Psalm 19. I'm going to go ahead and read it from the beginning. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors, forgive his hidden faults? Keep your servant also from willful sins." 
May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So today we're going to pick up in verse 7. We did the first part of Psalm 19 yesterday, but we're going to pick up with this aspect of the law of the Lord being perfect and reviving the soul. So essentially, when we're talking about, especially in the Old Testament, about the law, we're talking about God's word and basically all the the commands and the instructions and the guidelines, all of those things as being perfect, meaning they're completely effective as a guide for how we are to live our lives. And so when we apply God's word to our lives, it's always going to serve the purposes that God has planned for our life. And so give living in this place of being obedient to God's standard is not I think sometimes people think it's a burden or it's a harsh responsibility. That's really not a what it is. It's a privilege essentially for us to live in the safety of being obedient to God because that is God's best plan for our lives. And so um we could look at it two ways. We could look at it in this this idea of God's law or God's rule is restrictive and I just want to do what I want to do and free will and all those kinds of things. But then there's a consequence for that. The consequence for that is we're going to be living our lives outside of God's perfect will for us. And I can tell you that God's perfect will for our lives is far superior to anything we can muster up on our own. And so by living within the standard that God has for us as believers, that's where freedom comes from. That's where joy comes from. That's where peace comes from. That obedience is what actually gives us spiritual freedom. So if if we're looking at verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. It's reviving the soul. There have been times in my life where I have wanted to do or I have done things outside of God's will for my life. And even though there might have been some temporary satisfaction in that, there's a burden of the soul that that, that comes with that kind of um, living outside of God's plan, especially for believers. When I have surrendered that part of my life to being obedient to God, that's when that reviving happens. And sometimes, obviously, that's easier said than done, but that's why we have the benefit of the Holy Spirit. Scripture talks about the helper, the advocate, the the role of the Holy Spirit is to help us, to enable us, to empower us, to be obedient to God's plan for our lives. Now, I think the flip side of this, we have to be careful about about it too. Just following God's plan and, and being super, super strict about things that could be seen as legalism binds us in a way that is is not God's perfect plan for us either. And so sometimes what happens is people will take regulations and the law and and abide by that so strictly that they forget about the relationship part. They forget about um, this whole idea of being a believer is about developing a relationship, a back and forth with God. And they rely so heavily on their obedience to the law. And they forget about this dynamic of of, of the plan, of um, the way that God continues to pursue us and, and desire relationship with us. And I I will say what I have observed over the years is different denominations handle this differently. 
there are certainly some denominations that are more legalistic than others. And then there are certainly denominations that are much more free. And depending on their relationship with God outside of the scripture, and, and they let go of some of the things that they should be holding fast to. I think the ideal scenario is somewhere in the middle. In the sense that, yes, we hold to the law, we understand God's standard for our lives, and we work hard to be obedient to those things because of the relationship that we have with God. And, and I say that because I think that can be mimicked in our um, human relationships. So, for example, my husband and I guard our relationship because it is important to us and we care about it. And so for us, that means things like not being alone with the a member of the opposite sex. And that's easier for me to do than him because I work out of my house. <laughs> but, um, you know, there are there have been situations in the past where there have been maybe work trips or work lunches or different things where we've had to say, no, I'm sorry, I'm not comfortable with that. I've made a commitment to my spouse to not spend alone time with a member of the opposite sex. Now, that is something that is personal that we have decided within the confines of our own relationship that we're going to do because we don't want to risk anything because we care about that relationship. That has saved us a number of times from awkward situations or awkward conversations where people know that about us now and there's no temptation there if you don't allow yourself to be put in that situation to begin with so in that sense there's a freedom I am free from even the temptation of engaging in any inappropriate you know conversations or relationships or anything from a member of the opposite sex because I don't even allow myself to go down that road and not that I would anyway but I don't even have to worry about the temptation because I just don't allow myself to get to that to get to that place so there's a natural freedom there I don't ever think about it I don't worry about it I don't worry about my husband um you know we're both committed to that same standard of living. And so there's a natural freedom there. There's a freedom where he can at any point in time on any day of the week at any moment's notice, pick up my phone and go through my phone and I can do the same with him. There's not an issue because there's nothing to hide. So there's a freedom there. There's a natural freedom. And I, I say that to kind of bridge this gap with our relationship with God. When there is a restrictive component or something that feels like a restrictive component it is usually protective. And that's why reading scripture in context is so important. Understanding the history and the culture and the relationships and the dynamics of what's going on because there's a protective element. And I think sometimes there is this sense that sometimes obedience comes even when we don't or the expectation for obedience comes even when we don't fully understand. And I say that just because I, I understand as a parent, sometimes there's things I cannot explain fully to my child. Either they're not old enough to understand it. Maybe there's no time. Maybe there's circumstances that are beyond our control and I don't have all the details, regardless of what it is. Because of the relationship I have with my children, they trust me. And so if I say to them, get in the car now, and there's a certain voice, a certain tone of voice, a, a look that I give them. There's, this is not the opportunity to say, why? I don't want to go yet. We, you know, all those things. Instead, they look at me and they go. Now, I might explain that later. They might understand themselves later. 
Sometimes I don't. Sometimes out of protection, I don't explain to them what's going on. I don't want them to have fear or I don't want them to understand the consequence of what's going on or maybe an adult situation. But as the parent, I have greater insight to what's going on versus them as the child. And I think sometimes we forget that that's how it is with God. He is a good father. And part of being a good father is protecting the child, even when they don't understand the rules that are in place to protect them. And so I, I think that's what's going on here in verse Verse seven, where we see this this idea of the protective law of God being perfect. Now, I want you to see in verses seven through eleven, there is really five parts of God's word mentioned here in the psalm. So, there's the the first part is the law, which is just again a general term for the way that God reveals His plans and His purposes, and that is expressed through different commands or guidelines or directions that are given and how we relate to God, making sure that we are relating to him in the right way. That's what we see in verse seven. And then it talks about the statutes. The statutes are not simply laws. They're really God's truths and decrees that express his character and sometimes his purpose. And so when we study God's statutes, that's where this idea of wisdom comes from uh, wisdom comes from the Lord, of course, but when we study the statutes of God, that's how we can become wise. And our goal is to be working towards acting more like God in our relationships and, and working towards um, this process of, it's a big Bible word called sanctification, this process of becoming holy. There in verse eight, they talk, it talks about the precepts. So the precepts are definite rules that essentially talk about righteous living and how if we follow that pattern for righteous living, it will it will produce this result of joy. And remember, we talked about joy a couple of weeks ago about how joy is a result of spiritual health. Well, part of being spiritually healthy is not only recognizing God's precepts, but then following through on them because they're a guideline for righteous living. They're a guideline that's going to produce a result, have a natural consequence of righteousness in our lives. Then it talks about the commands. The commands are basically an authoritative source of guidance for anybody who wants to clearly see God's plan and to follow in his ways. And really the proper response for a command is understanding that fear of the Lord. And and I liken that, perhaps it's not the best example, but I liken that to my relationship with my children. They understand the fear of mom. If If mom is saying, get in the car now, immediately, they, because of the dynamic of a relationship, they respond. I think a lot of times um, we go to this idea of what the fear of God means. And it's not always um, fear in the sense of what we understand fear to be. Fear in a lot of times means awe or reverence because we understand God is so much bigger than us and he knows so much more than us and we respect his role and his authority in our, in our lives. And so understanding and living underneath that covering of the fear of God, of understanding, of being in relationship with him, of trusting him, that will bring us to a place of spiritual peace and freedom. Now, if if there's a dangerous situation and I say to my kids, get in the car now, and they choose not to get in the car, 
what's a likely consequence? Well, a likely consequence is they're going to get involved in something that they don't want to be involved in, that would be dangerous for them to be involved in. Me giving them that that structure or that instruction, especially with the pressing need for it to happen now without explanation, this trust factor, because of our relationship, they know that they their best interest is to be obedient to whatever I'm saying. My prayer and my hope is that we would understand and and relish in our relationship with God so much that we would trust him. That when he gives us a command or he gives us a precept or a statute or something, a guideline, that we trust him enough. Even if we don't understand the thing that he's saying for us to do, we trust him enough to be obedient because we trust who he is as a good father. And then lastly, we have the ordinances. And the ordinances are really laws that are governing the social life and the relationships with others. And especially in the area that leads to, to justice, the ordinances are something that um, are a biblical standard that we will see both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this aspect of God's nature and character that reveals to us that he is a God that cares about justice in many, many areas in many, many ways. In verse 8, when it's talking about the precepts and giving joy and the commands are radiant, it says it gives light to the eyes. And um, of course, I think we all understand what it's like to be in a dark room and then suddenly light is shown, whether through a flashlight or we turn the light on or whatever, the difference that makes. And I think that's how I always read this. But but one step further in, in the context of the ancient Near East and how they would have understood this is the light to the eyes refers to life. And so for them, the law and the precepts of the law and the commands of the law are to give them an opportunity to have their life extended. So for those that follow these commands, this, this referring to the light is talking about an extension of their lives. And so the opposite is true. When the light goes from their eyes, death is near. And because that was an ancient Near Eastern concept, I think sometimes we, we miss it. Light to the eyes is really essentially talking about life, life itself. So again, there's this protective element, this protective nature there. And then in verse 10, it says, They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. I think gold and honey are two uh, word pictures that are important to pay attention to. Gold and honey are things that I think we naturally think are plentiful or well used in the ancient world, but it, it actually refers to a little bit more of a rare instance because when it talks about gold, pure gold, there's a difference between there was white gold and there was red gold. There's a difference between the purity of the gold and some of the gold is much, much more rare. The pure gold is much more rare. There was gold used, of course, in building door frames and temples and all sorts of things, but that was not pure gold. Pure gold is much, much more rare. And then again, sweeter than honey, it's talking about honey from the comb. There was two kinds of honey. In the ancient world, there is no record keeping at this age, uh, when this would have been written, of beekeeping. So it's talking about date honey, meaning it was like a syrup made from dates. It was not talking about bee honey. 
when you were typically talk, talking about honey as part of their diet. So when it's saying it's honey from the comb, that means it was imported. It means it was valuable. It means there was a sweetness to it that was not common. It was much, much more rare. So when it says these statues of the Lord are more precious than gold, they're talking about pure gold. It's talking about how they are sweeter than honey, honey from the comb. That was a precious commodity that was not common and it wasn't easily able to to be found and so it is really an allegory or a word picture or imagery for how special and how rare these things are now going down to verse 12 it says who can discern his errors forgive my hidden faults this idea of hidden faults um i, I think we as believers especially if we are pursuing God and we are trying to understand his word, there is a sense that we all strive to love God and serve God with all of our hearts. But we are human and there is an imperfection in this life because of the fall, because of sin. And we are all going to fall short of God's standard at some point in our lives, maybe some point today. I mean, if I'm honest, we we that's why we need Jesus. That's why we need this rescue plan that God has. And so if we're falling short of God's standard or his purpose for our lives and we don't know it, um, we have to ask God to reveal it. And so I think sometimes there's a difference between intentional sin and unintentional sin. Uh, we've all had situations, or maybe you haven't. I have, I've had situations before where I was completely unaware that somebody was having an issue with me. And, you know, maybe some of that is just, I don't, on one hand, I don't really care what people think. I just am going to worry about uh, my relationship with God. And if God is okay with me and my family's okay with me, that's really all I worry about. But Sometimes I, because I have a pretty straightforward personality and I'm pretty direct, sometimes that can rub people the wrong way. And and I remember there was one situation where years had gone by, like 10 years had gone by. And it wasn't until after the fact when I was no longer around one individual that a friend of mine made a reference to how he hated me. And I thought, what? Like, I had no idea. And she said, I thought the feeling was mutual. I said, no, like, not at all. Like, I, I respect him. And I've always considered him a friend or whatever. And she said, Oh, no, well, he hates you. And I don't know why I, re I really don't know why. I mean, there have been instances in the past where I have confronted some things. I'm I'm one by on the Enneagram eight, one of the things that you learn about an Enneagram eight temperament or personality is we don't shy away from conflict. For us, conflict is connection. And for me, conflict, I feel is healthy because it gets us to a deeper level in our relationship. So I always deal with conflict head on. So I thought, well, maybe perhaps it was something like that. I, I confronted him on something and I thought it was resolved and he was harboring, I, you know, ill will towards me or something. I don't really know. But my point is, is sometimes there are things that we do unintentionally that we don't even know that we do. And so this idea of forgiving my hidden faults, we are all going to have blind spots sometimes. And I think what this is pointing us towards is surrendering those blind spots and asking God to reveal them, reveal what they are. And so if there are elements of my personality, for me specifically, the way that that went in my heart and my mind was, Lord God, if there are 
aspects of my personality that are harmful to other people, reveal that to me. And not just now, but in the moment when it's happening, reveal that to me and help me to soften so I don't offend people that um, might not be able to take my personality or or help me to understand the best way to, to deal with them. Because my intention is never to hurt somebody. My intention is never to come across as aggressive or, or whatever it is. Um, and maybe that's not even it. I'm just using that as an example that we all have blind spots. And so this example is asking God to forgive my hidden faults and just recognizing that we all have things about our personality and our temperament that are hidden. In verse 14, it says, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I think this idea of our the meditation of our heart being pleasing in God's sight is really the proper response to the work that God is doing in our hearts, in our lives, our salvation experience. And it really should be a constant prayer that we ask that God will keep our hearts in a place of purity and a desire to please him and being free from sin. And, and I think that kind of prayer is a vital part of this ongoing personal relationship with God. What we think about and what we speak about, all of that should be in an effort to please God. And I think that could be or should be a guiding principle for us. This idea that our hearts should be in such alignment with God's heart that we care most about that relationship. And sometimes that can be a guiding principle for us in our obedience into what God is calling us to do. There have been times in my life where maybe something has come up and I'm not sure what to do, but I have prayed this prayer of like, okay, God, I just want to be obedient to you. So if you want me to do this, I will do it. If you don't want me to do it, I won't do it. Reveal yourself to me and reveal your plan because ultimately I just want to be obedient to what you're calling me. And then lastly, um, this last section, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The word translated rock, it's tier, I think is how it's pronounced, T-S-U-R, tier, from the Hebrew. It refers to a real big solid rock or a large rock that's kind of like a cliff. So I would picture a big boulder. We have Panama rocks near us where there are these giant huge boulders that that have these steep drop-offs, these cliffs. And so in in Israel, this was limestone country, don't forget. These kinds of rocks did a number of things. They provided shade, they provided protection. And they were often used as landmarks to help people find their way as they're going throughout the landscape. We we talked about this when we talked about Psalm 18, about how David hid in the rock and God was his refuge and, the, and he used the rock literally as, as protection. And so these kinds of rocks would often include caves and that's where people hid. So that's what David did. Um, in lots of different places. We we learned about that in the last psalm, but in 1 Samuel chapter 23, he talks about it. And David recognizes the Lord as his spiritual rock, his protection. God, we see this word used throughout uh, the Old Testament. So God provided water out of the rock in Mount Horeb and used it to nourish and uh, water the Israelites that were in the desert wandering. Um, but the New Testament alludes to the rock in the sense that 
they really drank from this spiritual rock that was accompanying them. We, we hear the rock of Christ mentioned. Um, and so in addition to being this idea of being a refuge or even a source, like the source of water was the rock was water. God at his foundation and at his core, as far as his relationship with us, he is solid. He is dependable. He is constant. He is trustworthy. And so when it refers to God as redeemer, it's really David's way of saying that he's looking to God as the one who saves his life in so many different ways from destruction. And he's rejoicing that God rescued him from his trouble with his enemies. And he liberates his soul and he 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 is able to escape spiritual oppression. Remember, we went through this whole season of David when he was in depression and he was dealing in the lament Psalms, the first part of the Psalms, all this depression we see David coming through. He He's really equating God as... As the one that saved him from that place. And then also this restoration that he has in his relationship with God after he has failed spiritually. And so I think that's important. I think that's where we're going to stop. Um, I think that's important because what we see is ultimately the spiritual restoration that we have access to is through Jesus. And so when it talks about God is my rock or, or Christ the rock. It's not just foundational, but it is protective and it is provisional and it is dependable and it is trustworthy and it is this relationship that is unlike any other thing. And so I think that's some of the imagery that we see in Psalm 19. And I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read it one more time for you and just listen. Let, let some of the insights we had yesterday and today Come to mind as you listen through some of the imagery, knowing what, what you know now, knowing some of this insight, and listen to the psalm one more time. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are, are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God, we thank you for the way that you reveal yourself and the example we see in David as we look at your statutes and your ordinances and your plans and your commands, 
God, help us to lean into that relationship and understand the protective nature, the foundational way that you provide for us as our rock and our redeemer. Lord God, you are more precious than gold, than pure gold. You are sweeter than honey, honey from the comb. God, help us not to lose sight of that. Help us to view your word and your guidance and the call to obedience as an opportunity to walk in freedom, spiritual freedom. Lord God, help us to remember that you were a good father and there's a protective element to the way that you've called us to live a life that is seeking after righteousness. God, I pray for my friend today that as they are perhaps thinking about some of these things for the first time, that you would continue to reveal yourself to them throughout the day. God, I thank you for your word and the power it has to transform our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey friends, if this podcast helped encourage, empower, or equip you for God's call in your life, I would love it if you would head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. That's the number one way you can support my show. You can also join our free Facebook community or Instagram page where I share inspirational tips, resources, and prayer throughout the week. Hey, I want you to know I'm praying for you this week. Know that you are loved, you are cherished, and you are His.